Midwinter, invincible, immaculate. The Count and his wife go riding, he on a gray mare and she on a black one. She wrapped in the glittering pelts of black foxes. And she wore high, black, shining boots with scarlet heels and spurs. Fresh snow fell on snow already fallen. When it ceased, the whole world was white. I wish I had a girl as white as snow, says the Count. They ride on. They come to a hole in the snow. This hole is filled with blood. He says, I wish I had a girl as red as blood. So they ride on again. Here is a raven perched on a bare bough. I wish I had a girl as black as that bird's feathers. Lightning recap. <laughs> recap. In the snow child by Angela Carter. Um, a child is made and then uh, gross stuff happens. Hey, you've got a little time. <laughs> We've got a little podcast. This is Chris and Christy have the giggles. Um, <laughs> it's been the holidays. It has been, yeah. In the past, and uh, it was a was a good time. I enjoyed meat. What story did I read with my meat? Uh, the story that you read with your meat was, was The Snow Child by Angela Carter. And this is a story to sink your teeth into. Um, it's short. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's a remarkably dark story that riffs off of a lot of the grim type fairy tales and then makes it dark very dark because grim wasn't grim enough you know yeah and it, it opens up even the first section it makes makes me ask a very interesting question uh the phrase of course uh they come to a hole in the snow this hole is filled with blood why is there a hole filled with blood that they're just riding around in? I mean, I don't think they ride into the snow or into the hole with blood, which is uh, an unpleasant thing to say. Um, I just think they, they probably went around it. it. Just as they ride on again, it doesn't give you any indication that they went through it. So there's that. That does not change the fact that there is, in fact, in the middle of the snowy woods, a hole filled with blood. So we've only really solved like 5% of the problem. There's a great moment in the comic book series, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, in which uh, he paints the walls with blood, but then he keeps yelling, but when it dries, the color changes. It has to stay wet. So... <laughs> This is either exceptionally fresh or they're looking at like dried blood. But I think it's a key element to this story is that we are being prepared for something big and dark and heavy to happen in this one. And I would argue it's foreshadowing. I would say a good, a good 75% of the story is foreshadowing. Yeah. 
Yes, that's true. Because the last, it's only the last quarter of the story in which it's actually dark. <laughs> yeah, that, that darkness is like a shadow over the first part. And then when you get to the, the, the last quarter or so, it's, it's definitely more like um, a full on eclipse. Mm-hmm. Because the Count, by speaking his desires, apparently, has conjured this girl that he described. And we're not given any sort of magic background, which is great. I love that. I like when things just happen. Uh, But what we... And apparently it's not even particularly out of the ordinary it's just something that happens and then we get to the point where the countess really just wants to get rid of her and that's where an interesting question comes in is why is she so interested in getting rid of the girl well i mean my guess is even though it's a girl and that does what it is um we don't get really an age uh, for the girl with the, the propensity for people to call women well into their 30s girls or even beyond. Uh, we don't really know her age, but I would say probably uh, romantic rivalry. I, the first time I read it, that was my instant thought. But then... I kind of thought that maybe it was actually a bit of concern. Hmm. And I'm, I'm torn between, because it's written definitely like there is a, a jealousy thing going on, but she has to have known this was going to happen because it's presented so entirely sort of flatly and matter-of-factly that I kind of thought that it was that she knew this was ongoing, that this would happen. And, you know, they're writing through kind of blasé about it. And he's saying these things that he wants and then it suddenly happens and then he fulfills himself. Spoiler alert, uh, the story ends up with a uh him raping the dead girl yep 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 there's uh there's a just a soupçon of necrophilia in here and done so quickly mm-hmm. uh we have a couple of chunky paragraphs and then uh weeping the count got off his horse unfastened his breeches and thrust his virile member into the dead girl the countess reined in her stamping mare and watched him narrowly. He was soon finished. Two sentences, a semicolon. I know your favorite. Uh, but uh, in this 500-wordish piece, it's just that. And it's much different how it is. Although this is, I believe, the first time the words virile member have appeared in our podcast. I'm, I'm interested though, because this par- the chunky paragraph before it 
described her trying to get rid of the girl. Um, you know, she drops she drops a glove saying that she wants to uh, the girl to get the glove and said, I'll buy a new gloves. Uh, tosses her brooch into, I'm sorry, brooch uh, into the pond and tells her to fetch it. What's really interesting is that when the girl is created, she's naked. And they make no move to clothe her. Well, I mean, there is some... They don't necessarily make a move, but it's as a result of uh, the Countess's uh, jealousy or hatred, whatever, however you want to put it, uh, that, that the Count removes her clothing and puts it on, uh, you know, at least he takes the furs off of the Countess's shoulders and twined them around the naked girl. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking that he, it, surprisingly, he does clothe her, but only in response to the Countess's display of emotion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so the, what's the best way to put it? It's a reprisal in a way. It's that when he realizes that she she is either trying to deny him his fun or, and actually that's either way, look at it. Like no way, it's either he's trying to stop, she's trying to stop this from happening either by completely eliminating her for the reason of jealousy or because she doesn't want it to actually happen to her. But then the Countess probably kills her on purpose, knowing that this will happen. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that all makes sense. There's a lot of ambiguity in this that I'm interested in. Because there is a very simple reading that is that she's jealous. She knows she's going to die. Um, and again, we have no inkling that this could happen. And that makes us even heavier because it seems more like matter of factly. But my question is, was this his goal from the beginning to to have her the way he did, like with her being dead. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you're right. And I'm, I'm, that makes this even harder to sort of put into a world, like a bigger world beyond these just two. Mm-hmm. And I think that's on purpose. And I, I really, because a world in which this can happen is one magical, but two far heavier than what we sort of imagine as being potentially real in a real world, uh, with true crime podcasters accepted from that. <laughs> but also, as we can see, he, this world is of his agency and it's of his design. It seems like if, if he's just doing these things and nobody's commenting, then maybe he put the pool of blood there. You know, maybe he's the reason it's snowy. <laughs> maybe it's July. And so you have that, um, the fact that he's creating the world and what that tells us about the parts of the world we can't see. And the only conclusion I think you can come to is that he's the creator of it. So nothing here happens 
without his say so. When the countess starts to get, uh, you know, try to get the, the girl to, to do things that might harm her or kill her, he's able to put a stop to that. So when it does happen, I still think that it's by his intention. Interesting. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And I'm when we get the the very next line after the you know whole thing is then the girl began to melt. And that's a really interesting point as well. Is what exactly is she? Like we know her color, we know her sort of existence, but what is she? I think she's a dreamer, a nightmare, depending on which uh, horse you're riding. Ooh, that's like artsy and stuff. <laughs> Every once in a while, I go to that well. Not often, but once in a while. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that that's, that's an interesting point that there is a reality to this story that we're kept distant from. But we can instantly overlay that with the idea of the ideas of the world around us, how, you know, he's specifically referred to as the count. She's referred to as the countess, two roles, two named roles of power. And we believe that when you have power, when you have the ability to ask for what you want and automatically get it, that that corrupts you and that you know, clearly a theme here. And I think that that power is easily applicable. You can put Mm -hmm. that on. And I think that it's a great, to great effect that she uses just some intensely beautiful language here to make that sensation happen. Yeah, and I think part of that sensation is from how clean and pristine everything starts off. Um, and that really helps, like, it, it, it really helps to set a contrast with the, the, the darkness of the story um, and the corruption. You know, it, it provides a sort of a, a backlit sort of profile for the corruption that we see inherent in the Count and the Countess, too. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea kind of of magic happening here, of course, where after she has begun to melt and there was nothing left behind but a feather, a blood stain, and a, the rose she had plucked. But then suddenly the countess has all her clothes on again with, you know, is that just the language that time has basically stopped? while the events are happening and she gathered up her clothes and put them on or is it just literally poof, they're back well i think it's like when the count took her clothes off of her and put them on the girl except now he's just kind of like done the snaps his fingers and the clothes are back on her again mm-hmm. so it's yeah it's a good that's an interesting way to do it hmm, that would make sense uh, i didn't think of that you've bested me again <laughs> I'm a bester. It's what I do. Like Alfred Bester? He's dead. Well, I'm alive, so we're not alike in that way, I guess. 
<laughs> Correct. Uh, but yeah, this is a this is an intense story, and I'm glad it is so compact because any longer, and this would be a uh, this would be a half a bottle of wine followed by a half bottle of wine uh, story. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the the briefness of it, the brevity, really helps due to A, the mood that the story sets, and B, the subject matter. And it also, it, it suits the overall format that the story has of this, this very like, beautiful language. You can pack more of a punch in that small space without it being overkill. So um, the only thing that's overkill is the semicolons. I love semicolons normally, but she just, I, I don't think you should have more than one per story, if that. Don't read my book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm also really fascinated by the number of call-outs to the fairy tale traditions that we are sort of aware of already. Things like, the raven's feather, uh, the pricking of the th- of the finger to cause death or you know sleep in most of the stories, the uh, importance of figures such as a count or a countess that are used to sort of tell the story overall. Usually, it is to them getting their comeuppance. Here, it's for them to display their. Dep- gravity in whatever way it is yeah and i mean there's there's the snow child is is a tale of its own in the in the history of folk tales um and Mm. we have it here it's turned around because in the original story it's a woman uh trying to pass off a little hanky panky while her husband was away and he comes home and finds her with a baby and does the math and she says oh well i swallowed a snowflake while i was thinking about you which is not just in case there's anyone listening who hasn't taken sex ed or something that's not at all how it works um i mean everyone knows it's raindrops you got to swallow raindrops it doesn't work when it's frozen that explains that movie i watched the other night Uh, (laughs) oh dear uh, so, you know, he, he, he does the whole thing where he raises the kid um, with her, but then eventually is like, well, screw this and off to slavery you go. And in that case, his explanation and what he says to his wife is that, the, you know, he doesn't admit what he did. He says, oh, well, it got hot. He melted. He was a snowflake baby. <laughs> Good point. I do appreciate that now knowing that because i hadn't ever heard that one but i will say that what happens here is you get after the the uh, necrophilic rape i guess the best way to put it there's only literally one more quotation here and it ends it with it bites it's like that moment when you know something terrible has happened but no one speaks about it until some random event happens that just seemingly seems out of nowhere to happen. And, you know, it's like, uh, you hungry? Uh, it's the classic one that seems to always happen, you know, car accident, 
everyone's in shock and then someone says, you hungry? And you say, yeah, let's go to Taco Bell. And you go to Taco Bell. That happened to me once. Okay. I, it sounded kind of specific, like, like an actual event that you experienced. So... No. <laughs> I'm also interested in whether or not the Countess lived. Mm. I'm certain she didn't. Interesting. Because that is an interesting point. He picked it up. He didn't get, apparently he didn't get uh, pricked by it. And he bowed to his wife and handed it to her. Now, did she die? Because we know that the uh, the girl who who pricked her finger, uh, she screamed and fell. And here it seems that she yelled or exclaimed, note the exclamation point, not the scream point. Uh, it bites. But then it ends there. Leaving it to us, the reader, to determine. And I'm going to say it popped the bubble of the world she was in and she woke up in Los Angeles, 1987. <laughs> I am going to say, uh, I'm sticking to my assertion that she dies. And I think just as soon as the count is uh, ready, something new appears. It doesn't, destruction doesn't matter when creation is so damn easy. I want that as merch. Uh, yeah, you know what? I do too. And also, I think I'm going to think I'm, that's the title of my autobiography. Oh, hello. <laughs> Excellent. Got any more on this one? No, that's all of my little bumbles for the day. <laughs> Excellent. You know, this story really makes me want to read something maybe even a little bit darker. Uh, got anything you could think of? <laughs> Well, you've already got me looking forward to our next story, which is Charles Bukowski, Loneliness. So let's get a cocktail and enjoy that piece. Yeah. Oh, a cocktail or seven? Yeah. Uh, true. And if by cocktail you mean uh, just straight lighter fluid, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Always do. Yes. Always what I mean. And until then, this shall be short story short podcast Doop. <laughs> <laughs>